0: As I was thinking this week about what would be one of the most difficult jobs in the world today, it came to mind that one of the most difficult jobs in the world today is to be the official spokesperson of the US president and the Filipino president. There are many times I feel very sorry for Sarah Sanders and for Harry Roque. They do not have an easy job because a presidential spokesperson is responsible for creating and maintaining a positive public image for the individual they speak on behalf of. If you are a spokesperson for a corporation, for a business, for a school, you know that is true. A spokesperson is one who communicates with the public and advises in matters of public relation. And so most spokespeople, hold degrees in journalism or communications, public relations, or a related field. Now, you may be glad that you are not a presidential spokesperson, but then you got to understand you are a spokesperson whether you like it or not, because the Bible tells us that we are all called to be spokespeople of Jesus Christ to this world. It is not an easy task, because the world does not want to hear the message we bring. The world is rebellious. They are antagonized by Christianity and the belief of Jesus. And therefore, you are to be a spokesperson for Christ in a very, very difficult climate. Now, is it easy to be a spokesperson? The answer, of course, is no. And that is why there are some prerequisites. There are some requirements to being a spokesperson of Christ, of which all of us are called to be. What are these requirements? That's what we want to take a look at this morning as we continue our study in the book of Ezekiel. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Ezekiel chapter 2. We pick up where we left off at verse 8, and we'll be going to Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 27. God has called the prophet Ezekiel to be his spokesman to his people. But before he is sent out, he gives three requirements of what a spokesman of God needs to look like or how he needs to prepare himself. They will serve as an outline for us for how we can also serve as spokespeople for the Lord. Now the first requirement, let me just give you off the bat, number one of your taking notes The first requirement of being a spokesperson for the Lord, number one, is to be rooted in the Word, to be foundationed upon the Word of God. This is clearly seen as God prepares Ezekiel to be his spokesman to his people. Look at verse 8 of chapter 2 with me. But you, son of man, hear what I have to say. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. God has called Ezekiel to be a prophet to his people, to speak to a rebellious generation. Now God desires to prepare his prophet to be his spokesman by asking him to do something that is quite unbelievable. What does God ask Ezekiel to do? Look at verse 9 to chapter 3, verse 1. Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, that he spread it before me. And there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Chapter 3, verse 1. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. Out of heaven, God extends a scroll for Ezekiel to eat. On this scroll are writings on both sides. What is written on these scrolls are the words of God, which were words of impending judgment. And this, words of impending judgment, these bad news, would accurately summarize what the prophetic judgments that Ezekiel would have to give to his people as recorded in chapter 4 to 32 until the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And then we'll note when we get there that the prophets message changes to the exilic people. But let's note on why in the world God would ask Ezekiel to eat the scrolls. You see, the symbolic act of eating the scrolls was to tell Ezekiel that he needed not only to read the Word of God, he really needed to understand it. He needed to digest it. He needed to assimilate it into his life. It must be a literal part of him. Ezekiel needed to know the Word of God through and through. He needed to believe it, accept it. It must be a part of his life. You see, my friends, we cannot speak with confidence of which we do not know and do not really believe. We cannot ask others to believe if we do not have the passion and conviction ourselves. And to have that passion and conviction Of the word of God, we must digest it. We must assimilate it into our lives. Integrate it into the way we live. Verse 2 and 3. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate And it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. Ezekiel indeed eats the scroll and literally and figuratively digests the contents of this scroll. But what's interesting is that it is sweet to the prophet's taste. But the words, you may ask, on this scroll are words of judgment. They are words of doom and gloom. How in the world can it be sweet to the taste of It can be sweet to the taste of the one who digests the Word because the source of the Word is from God. It is sweet to the taste of the one whose heart is ready to receive the Word of God, even though it is words of correction and rebuke. You see, because the prophet's attitude was in the right place, when he received God's Word, it was satisfying to his soul. It was sweet. In the same way, when we read the Scriptures, what is our attitude? Are we excitingly anticipating how the living Word of God, with its wealth of life-changing truth, will refresh us and edify us, even though they are words of rebuke and correction? Because, my friends, if you're angry when you read the Word of God, if you get defensive when you read the Word of God, then you are not coming to the Word of God with the correct attitude. We are to come and be rooted in the Word with a genuine desire to learn from it, acknowledging that it is from the Word of the Almighty. In verses 4 to 7 of chapter 3, God then tells Ezekiel that He is to bring His Word to the house of Israel, his own people who could understand his own language. But God tells Ezekiel that they would not listen to him because not only are they hard-headed, they are hard-hearted. It was a similar warning that God gave the prophet in chapter 2. But Ezekiel is not to worry that he will encounter a difficult audience because he will equip Ezekiel. Look at verses 8 and 9. Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces, and your forehead strong against their foreheads. Like adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed by their looks, though they are a rebellious house. God tells Ezekiel, you will run into some hard-headed people, but don't you worry, I'm going to make your forehead harder than theirs. Now what in the world does that mean? In the ancient Near East, an allusion to the forehead expresses defiance. The harder the forehead, the harder the defiance. God says, I will make you more defiant than those defiant people. In fact, your forehead will be harder than flint. The flint stone, not the cartoon, but the stone that is made out of flint, was the hardest stone in the land of Palestine And that's why they used it to make knives. If you read in the Old Testament about flint knives, that's the reason they used flint. God says, I will make your forehead harder than flint. You will not waver when you stand in opposition to these hard-headed people. And so God was strengthening him. In fact, the very name Ezekiel means God strengthened. Whenever you see Uh, A name in the Bible, it ends with L. L means God. Ezekiel means God strengthens. What an appropriate name for a man who was sent out to a people who would not accept his message. In the same way, God, through His Word, hardens you, gives you fortitude, allows you to be defiant in a world that will defy God. Harder than Flint, in our context, enabled by the Spirit. Verse 10. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you and hear with your ears. And go, get to the captives, to the children of your people, and speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or whether they refuse. In verses 10 and 11, again, there is a reiteration of what is the most important aspect about being a spokesman for God. It is not to fear the message and how it will be received by the people. You are not to worry how your message from God is to be received. But what is most important is that you are rooted in the Word. Look at verse 10. Receive into your heart all my Word. God says to Ezekiel, Digest what I've written in the scroll, digest the Word of God, then you will be prepared to speak on my behalf. My friends, to be an able spokesman of God in our generation today, you must know the Word of God. You must be rooted in the Word of God. There is no other option than to know the Scriptures. It is not to sign up for a debate class, so how you can better debate a skeptic. It is not to sign up for a communication class so that you can more eloquently bring the Word. Those are all secondary to that which is of primary importance, and that is that you are rooted in the Word. You know, that's the problem of many Christians today, and the problem of many Christians in our congregation. Many of us are ill equipped in the knowledge of Scriptures, so that our sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, isn't very powerful. In fact, for many of us, the sword of the Spirit in our lives is a very dull instrument that isn't very effective because we do not know the truths of the Scriptures. I challenge you, I implore you, take the initiative to know the Bible, to learn systematic and biblical theology, to know what you believe in, and to know why you believe what you believe There is no other substitute for this. Not in eloquence, not in friendships, not in friendliness. The sad reality is many Christians this morning cannot answer common biblical questions that the world is asking. Why? Because our faith is an inch deep. It looks good on the outside, but there is nothing holding us down. We are not rooted in the Word. Rusty Wright Writes an article in Moody Magazine entitled, Seven Questions Skeptics Ask. These are the questions that the world is asking today. Can you answer these questions if they are asked of you, one who supposedly is a believer and has been a Christian for a long time? What if someone asks you, why is there evil and suffering in this world today? Is your God not a good God? If He's a good God, He would not allow evil and suffering to occur. How would you answer that? What if someone asks you, how can you believe that the Word of God is inerrant, without error, inspired by the Holy Spirit when there are supposed contradictions in the Bible? What about those who've never heard of Jesus? Isn't it highly unfair that those who are, have never heard of Jesus are destined for hell? How can Jesus be the only way to God? Isn't that exclusive? That doesn't sound very loving, Jesus being the only way to God. Wright proposes this question. Isn't Christianity just a psychological crutch? It's not really real. It just makes people feel good. So if religion makes you feel good, go for it. You can be as religious as you want as long as it gives you peace of heart. What if others ask you? I'm an educated man. I'm a thinking man. I could never take this leap of faith that you want me to take in believing in what Jesus requires that he somehow died for me. This blind leap of faith to believe in a God I've never seen. To take this assumption of truth that he sent his son I've never seen to die on my behalf. I'm an educated man. I don't believe that. How would you answer them? What if someone asks, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere, as long as you're a good person. There are a lot of religions out there talking about being good. You're just one of many. As long as it builds men and women to be good people of this world, to be good citizens of this world, it's good enough. How would you answer them? The sad reality is very few of us this morning could answer the questions that I've just proposed, and yet these are the questions the world is asking. And if you're the spokesman of the Lord Jesus Christ, what would you say? You see, my friends, it doesn't matter how many years you've been a Christian. You can tell me, I've been a Christian for 30 years That's not impressive because number of years as a Christian does not translate to Christian maturity. Number of years of coming to church does not translate it in you being rooted in God's Word. Verse 12 and 13. Then the Spirit lifted me up and I heard behind me a great thunderous voice. Blessed is the glory of the Lord from His place. I also heard the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touch one another and the noise of the wheels beside them and a great thunderous noise. After being told to eat the scroll, Ezekiel now hears a powerful sound. It reminds him of the vision which is recounted in chapter 1 of this book. He hears the powerful sound caused by the wings of the four guardian cherubim He hears the powerful, majestic sound caused by the moving wheels with many eyes. And this powerful sound, blessing the glory of the Lord from His place, is a jolting reminder that God's Word comes from a source of one who is powerful and majestic. The one who writes those words on that scroll, which He just ate, is from the Almighty never forget my friends that when you are a spokesman for God telling others about the Word of God that the Word of God is not simply another opinion that the Word of God is not simply one of many options for how you can live a good life from one of the many deities in this world the Word of God is not simply a, another collection of wise sayings of how to be good. The Word of God, the Bible, the Scripture, is from the majestic, almighty, omnipotent, one and only true God. And that's what God, in the revelation of His glory, wanted to tell Ezekiel. That's why we at this church have a very high view of Scripture. We revere the reading of the Word of God. we take with great precaution the handling and the preaching of the Word of God. We expect that when you hear the Word of God, you are to apply it in your life with diligence and with respect because the Word of God is from the one who is enthroned on high and Lord over all. His Word is truth. Verse 14 and 15. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness, in the heat of my spirit. But the hand of the Lord was strong upon me, and I came to the captives of Tel Abib, who dwelt by the river Kabar, and I sat where they sat and remained there, astonished among them seven days. God supernaturally lifted Ezekiel from where he was and takes him to a settlement of Jewish captives who live near Tel Aviv by the river Kebar in Babylon. It's not the modern-day Tel Aviv that you hear about in the news. He is brought to this Jewish settlement. And the Bible tells us he was brought in bitterness of heart, in the heat of my spirit. He was angry and bitter. Now, he wasn't angry and bitter that God moved him. He wasn't angry and bitter when he read God's judgment on his people. What had happened is that as he digested the word of God, God's word and perspective became his perspective. And as God was mad and angry at the Jewish people's sin, so also the prophet, having digested God's word, also became angry and bitter at the sin of Israel. And so he expressed the same emotion as God. You will know when you are rooted in the word... When you can have the same view of sin that God has. And God hates sin. And you better as well. You will be rooted in the Word and are rooted in the Word when your perspective about life is God's perspective on life. So overwhelmed was his experience that Ezekiel had to process what he heard and read and digested. And when he got to Tel Aviv, the Bible tells us, he meditated on God's Word for seven days, so astonished. He stopped in his track and began to think about what he read and heard. How many of you would even spend more than five or ten minutes in processing God's Word. Most of us are in a rush. In a day, we read Scripture in the morning, and then we rush out, never really thinking about it. But in our books, we've read the Bible. We've checked the thing off our list. So be it. Seven days, he processed the Word of God. He thought about it. He internalized it. You and I, to be effective spokespeople for God, must be rooted in the word the second requirement for a spokesperson is found in verses 16 and 17 look with me now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me saying son of man I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel therefore hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me after seven days of processing God's word God again spoke to Ezekiel, and here he is commissioned as a watchman for the house of Israel. Let me give you the second requirement, number two. The second requirement to be a spokesperson for God, number two, is that you are to be a watchman for your people. A watchman for your people. Now what's a watchman? A watchman is a lookout. One who shouts and warns the people of impending danger. That's why they're often stationed at the city walls where they can look at the horizon to see if the enemy is coming. They're stationed on a high tower where they have a 360-degree view of the surrounding area because they are responsible to warn the people of the coming enemy, of impending danger. And this is what Ezekiel is called to be to his people, one who warns the people of impending danger. A watchman sees what is coming. He screams, he shouts, he alerts the people. Danger is coming. It is a job that you can't be scared or worried about what other people will think. It is a job with a great responsibility. Similarly, we as Christians today are called to be watchmen of our generation. It's a tough job. But we should not worry what others will think when we warn them about impending danger because people will misunderstand us. They will be annoyed by us. What they don't realize is that our warning from the Word of God is for their good. But they don't understand that because most people don't want to be bothered. They just want to go about their daily lives, their routine, living the rat race. They don't see the totality of the picture of what's coming, they only see a slice of their life and they only care about their life's perspective. And yet as the watchmen of this generation, you and I have a responsibility to look ahead for them and to consider the spiritual perspective, to look through the lenses of biblical truth, to warn them of what is coming. So when you see that they have to be warned, You will have to break their routine, you will have to bother them, you will have to annoy them in order that you can save them. I hope you see the importance of your role. The watchman is there to save and protect the people of the city and in our context, the people of our generation. Now, as a watchman, you can't cry wolf all the time. You need to be relevant to them. Your warning must be on time. It must be relevant for them at that moment. Remember last week when we had lots of rain, heavy rains, because of the low pressure system? The National Disaster Risk Reduction and Management Council, the NDRRMC, was sending important alerts to all of our cell phones about the inclement weather the orange alert the monsoonal floods the flash flooding that will occur take shelter but the problem is whenever i received these alerts i noticed that these alerts were more than 5 hours old and i noticed in a face and i noted in a facebook status post i understand filipino time but this is ridiculous and some of you told me you also got these screeching screaming alerts on your phone in the middle of the night and as you check your phone you found out that these were for notifications 4 hours ago how annoyed would you be to be woken up in the middle of the night only to be told old information quickly run the shelter flash flooding is coming and when you receive the note your car's already underwater You would be annoyed. You'd be a useless watchman. The alerts would be useless. Similarly, as a watchman of this generation, you and I need to be spot on. When we call out for the warning, it must be on time. You see, when a watchman calls and sounds the alert, he does so when the enemy is seen from the horizon, Not when the enemy is already at the gate or inside the gate. Because by then it's too late. So warn early and warn often. That is the job of a spokesman of God. Who cares if they are annoyed? As long as you have given them warning. All right, let me ask you this. When do you share the gospel with someone? When do you share the good news of Jesus Christ with someone? You do not share the gospel with someone when they have died. Because it's too late. You share with them the gospel when they are alive and their minds are clear and they can hear audibly the word of God. That's why I've said it many times. I find it very sad that many people want to share with their loved one for the first time the gospel when they're on their deathbed in the hospital. Many times it's too late. Right? And your only assurance is the doctor trying to comfort you tells you hearing is the last to go. I've asked doctors about that, and they say it's not true. It's only to make the loved ones feel better. That's the truth. If your heart's not pumping and there's no brain waves, hearing is not the last to go. And here people are whispering the gospel truth, Now, I hope by the grace of God, those people in the hospital beds are saved. But why do we have to wait until then? Why do we not share the gospel of Jesus Christ when their minds are sharp and awake and can respond and give you that assurance? You are a watchman warning them about the enemy at the horizon. It is too late when it is at the gate When do you warn people about sin? You warn them about sin, not when they finish sinning. You warn them about sin even before they would even consider sinning so that they don't consider that option or enter into that situation. Can I be straight with some of the parents who are here, parents especially of preteens and teenagers? And you may not hear this from other pastors, but I'm going to tell you straight up right now. Talk to your children about sex. Talk to them about how it is reserved by God only within the bounds of marriage. Tell them about how our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and they are to be respected. I know it is a difficult and awkward subject. If I were to take a survey of a generation older than young people today and ask them, how many of you heard the sex talk from your parents I venture to guess almost none of you it was a taboo subject and yet a previous generation lived in a more conservative environment the environment today is very different and I know this subject is awkward and difficult to talk to but it is your responsibility and not mine not the school's responsibility not the church's responsibility to talk to your children about the area of purity in your life. Because if you don't serve as a spokesperson to your family of what the Bible says about purity and sex, about the watching and the guarding of sexual purity in your children's life, someone else will get to them first, something we call the internet, friends, who will get to them before you do. And by then, the enemy is already inside the gate. There's so many parents out there who think that as long as I bring my children to church, as long as I send them to a Christian school, that they should know better. They'll figure it out. Why would you take that chance? You and I, as parents as mentors, have a biblical responsibility to serve as watchmen of our generation to sound the alarm when the enemy is at the horizon to tell them about impending danger. As a watchman, you need to know what to look for. You need to know that your enemy is cunning. He is deceitful. He wants nothing better than to destroy your life. So can you spot the warning signals? We know the warning signals if someone is addicted to something, whether to drugs or to alcohol or to gambling or whatever else. You see the signs of them coming home late, things becoming missing, the borrowing of lots of money, multiple phones, the doors are always closed to one's room. We see the warning signs. Don't wait until it actually happens. When the warning signs are there, deal with it. Nip it at the bud. In fact, God places a great responsibility on Ezekiel as a watchman spokesman to his generation. Look at verses 18 and 19. When I say to the wicked, You shall surely die, and give, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked ways to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. But you have delivered your soul. God says, Ezekiel, I will hold you personally responsible if you do not warn the wicked or the unrighteous. What they are doing is wrong. If you do not warn them and they continue to sin to their destruction, then you are culpable and I will hold you responsible. Now, if you warn them, these wicked people, and they continue in their wickedness, then you're not responsible. You're off the hook. Makes sense. That's his responsibility as a spokesman watchman but interestingly enough god gives him a second scenario verse 20 to 21 again when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity and i lay a stumbling block before him he shall die because you did not give him warning he shall die in his sin and his righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered but his blood i will require at your hand Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning. Also, you will have delivered your soul. Now, in this second scenario, let me explain. God says, Ezekiel, you have another responsibility. And your responsibility is to warn the righteous, the good people, to warn them that they are not to sin. Because if you do not warn them and these righteous people somehow sin, then I will hold you culpable and responsible. But if you warn them while they are righteous and good and they then commit sin, that's on them. You are not responsible. Remember the illustration I gave a few weeks ago about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden? I said that if God did not give Adam and Eve a warning about not eating fruit for the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, and if they ate the fruit, then that's God's fault because He didn't give a warning. But if God warned them, which He did, and they still did it, these innocent people at that time before they ate the fruit, then it's their fault. You and I, as watchmen of this generation, are to warn both the unrighteous and the righteous. Now, we often think about warning to only those who are bad, quote-unquote bad, the unrighteous. We are called to call them out on their sin. You've done wrong. Turn back to God. That's important. But there's something we forget. We forget that we are also called to warn the righteous to not sin so that they would not even consider The possibility of doing what potentially they would do in the future. So many people tell me, Pastor, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to go to church. I'm a good person. You know how you should answer them? You may be a good person in your eyes, but even a good person needs to be warned so that a good person, quote-unquote, can remain good. That's how you answer them because a lot of people have this notion, church is only for the bad people, those who've really messed up. And there the pastor will go and use God's word to rebuke them so that they'll be called out of a life of sin. All Christians need to fellowship together to edify and to challenge and to encourage one another so we will avoid sinning. Parents, you have a job as a watchman of your family to warn both your good children and your bad children. I use those in quotes because good and bad is hard to define, but you understand what I'm talking about. Sometimes we always think the parents always are supposed to only get mad at the bad kids, the disobedient children. That's right. But a good child, an obedient child, when your parents nag at you and keep telling you the same thing over again, what's your perspective Why am I hearing this? Why are you telling me this? I don't do any of this stuff. Right? Your parents tell you don't do drugs, don't drink alcohol, don't smoke. I don't do any of those things. Why do you keep telling me? Children, because it is their responsibility. They need to tell you ad nauseum till you get sick of it so that you won't do it so that when you get older and you are tempted to do it, you will still hear your mother's voice as I did. Don't do it. Don't do it. The more they warn you, the more that voice sticks into your head. The good child wondering why they need to be told, should not wonder because it is the responsibility of the parents to warn when the enemy is in the horizon, not when you have fallen in sin and then to rebuke you for falling into that pit. I hope that makes sense. In the same way, friends, you do the same thing. We tell each other as friends, as good friends, we challenge one another to rebuke them if they've done something wrong. But in friendship, We are also to edify and to encourage and to challenge one another to live in righteousness so that we do not allow our characters to slip. After our warning, our responsibility is over, how the audience takes on that responsibility of that warning lies on them. But God will hold each of us to account, whether as parents, as mentors, as guardians, as those of the older generation, if we have warned, as watchmen of our generation, others of coming sin. If you don't warn because you don't want to offend them, if you don't warn because you want to be your kids' friends, then you will be culpable in their sin. Now, I know it's pretty heavy stuff. Let me just kind of lighten it up. But this also help you understand, even the corporate world understands this. The corporate world understands this principle. So what do they do? They put warning labels on everything so that they don't get sued if dumb people use their product for ways it's not supposed to be used. So... They have warnings, and sometimes you read the warnings and you scratch your head. Why did they write that? Well, there's a lot of dumb people in this world. And so they put all the warnings out there to make sure you don't misuse their product. Like I saw this warning label on a baby stroller. Remove baby before folding. Really? Do you really need a warning label that says remove baby before folding? I guess there are people who try to fold their strollers with their kids still in it. I saw this warning label on a thermometer. Once used rectally, the thermometer should not be used orally. Common sense to me, but hey, there are others who haven't figured that one out yet. warning label on a carpenter's electric drill. This product is not intended to use as a dental drill. A warning label on a vanishing ink marker. Vanishing ink marker. Do not use for signing checks or any legal document. Warning labels on shirts. Do not iron while wearing shirt. Warning label on a Razor scooter, one of those scooters. Warning, this product moves when used. Warning label on a hairdryer. Do not use while sleeping. Warning label on a package of fireplace logs. Caution, risk of fire. Warning label on a brass fishing hook. Warning, harmful if swallowed. I don't know why people would swallow a fishing hook, but anyway. Warning label on a cartridge for a laser printer. And I checked, it's on there. Do not eat toner. Told you there's some dumb people in the world today. Warning label on a washer and dryer machine. Do not put any person in machine. Warning label on hair curling iron. Do not use on eyelash. One of my favorite is on a medical pamphlet. It's a medical pamphlet uh, talking about the risk for throat cancer. You may be at risk for throat cancer if you, colon, smoke or chew tobacco, have trouble swallowing food, have a lump on your neck, have hoarseness that won't go away, You may be at risk for throat cancer if you have a throat or mouth. Uh, That's everyone. They want to cover all their bases. If the corporate world has figured out that you are to warn both the really smart people and the dumb people, then you got to understand that when God calls us to be watchmen of this generation... We are called to warn both the wicked and the just. The third requirement to be a spokesman for God, verse 22 to 23. Then the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he said to me, Arise, go out into the plain, and there I shall talk with you. So I arose and went out into the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory which I saw by the river Kabar, And I fell on my face. After the commissioning of the prophet Ezekiel as a watchman for Israel to warn them of their wickedness, God asked Ezekiel to go out to a plain area, a flat area. And there again, God's glory was shown to Ezekiel, the same one he saw by the river Kabar, which we preached about in chapter 1. And again, the same response when one sees the great glory of God to fall flat on their face. Because now God will give him the third requirement, It will be a difficult one. Let me give it to you, number three, and then we'll expound it. Number three, the third requirement to be a spokesman for the Lord in our generation you are to live a life of restraint. Living a life of restraint. A spokesman of God is to live a life of restraint. As a spokesman for God, you cannot do and say whatever you want anytime. There are limitations, there are restraints and what you can or cannot do. God will give Ezekiel two restraints. They are very difficult. That's why I think God showed His glory first. He wanted to tell Ezekiel, this is who I am, and this is what I'm going to tell you to do, so you better follow. All right? First restraint, verse 24 and 25. Then the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and spoke with me and said to me, Go, go. Shut yourself inside your house, and you, O son of man, surely they will put ropes on you and bind you with them so that you cannot go out among them. The first restraint or limitation that God puts on his spokesman is that you must lock yourself in your house. What? Did I read that right? God is putting Ezekiel under house arrest. Yes, he is. This God-imposed restraint is, first of all, for Ezekiel's good because the generation he's speaking to is not receptive of his message. They will bind him. They will arrest him. And so you need to stay in your house, Ezekiel, for your own good. But his staying at the house also serves as a punishment to the people for their rebellion. You see, if Ezekiel cannot mingle with the people... He cannot warn them often of God's impending judgment if they don't shape up. Him being homebound means that he can go out, give God's warning once, and then that's it. He is to come back and stay in the house. To help you understand this principle, it's like a young person who always complains to his parents, why do you keep waking me up in the morning? Why do you keep waking me up before school? Why do you keep waking me up before I go to work? Although as a young person, you shouldn't need your parents to wake you up before work. But anyway, it happens. Why do you wake me up before school? Why do you wake me up before work? And then one day, your parent says, okay, you don't want me to wake you up? I won't wake you up. And so you don't wake up your child. And then when he wakes up, what's his complaint? Why didn't you wake me up? Now I'm late for school. Now I'm late for work. That's what God is saying in the restraint and limitation, Ezekiel, of you being homebound. You give them the warning once, they don't hear it, they don't get to hear it again. The second restraint, look at verse 26 27. I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and not be one to rebuke them for they are a rebellious house. And when I speak to them, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who hears, let him hear, and he who refuses, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. The second limitation or restraint is that God will make Ezekiel mute. He will not be able to talk. It's kind of ironic that you would mute your spokesperson. And yet, because of the rebellion they would not have the privilege of hearing God's warning. Now, God will still allow him to talk only when he is to give words of warning, but the rest of the time, the prophet will be mute. And we find out from Scripture that his muteness lasts for many years until the fall of Jerusalem, all the way until chapter 33. He does not speak, but only to deliver prophetic warnings, as God allows. You say, my goodness, I'm so glad I'm not Ezekiel. I could not stay in my house. I could not not speak. And yet this humble prophet led a reclusive life and a silent life. But that is the limitations that God placed on his spokesperson. We need to understand that because as christians today called to be spokespeople for god in this generation there are limitations that we need to understand that are placed on our life that we need to follow through you see the common complaint of many christians is if i become a christian i can't do this 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 and my answer to them correct you can't if you want to be an effective witness. And because we cannot accept the fact that if we are to be followers of Jesus Christ, there are certain things we can't do, then we live our lives no different from unbelievers. And no wonder we are not effective as spokespeople because unbelieving friends will tell us, you're no different from me. There are limits of how we are to live the glory of God. We come to church on a Sunday or on a Saturday night. That requires us to be limited in our ability to go out with friends on Saturday night. It limits our ability to sleep in on a Sunday morning, to go on an outing with someone. There are limitations. It will not be the same. Drill that down into your head. As a follower of Jesus Christ, as a young person, you are to reserve your purity and your virginity until the day of marriage so that you can be an effective witness to a world that has thrown this idea out the window. And yes, there are those amongst our young people who've messed this up. It's okay. God is gracious. God is merciful. But the reality is it brings you down a notch in your ability to serve as an effective witness and testimony. It is inspiring, and it shouldn't be, but it is inspiring in today's day and age that there are still young men and young women who are virgins until the day of marriage. That's something to be celebrated, and yet our culture doesn't celebrate that. But there are limitations that you must put into your life to ensure that that happens It goes into the life of an adult. We can make money in so many different ways. But if we are to serve as an effective witness, doing things right, it may cost us opportunity and it may cost us ability to make more money. But then, in that self-restraint and self-limitation of what you can or cannot do, For the sake of Jesus Christ, then you can serve as an effective spokesman for Jesus Christ. Because then you would not be tagged as a hypocrite because you are walking the talk. And that goes back to number one, rooted in God's word. Living it out as the word of God has infused your life. No one said it was easy to be a spokesperson for God. No one. At least God didn't tell you to stay home and he would make you mute. So don't complain that there are certain things in the New Testament he tells us we cannot do if we are to serve as living witnesses for him. Remember, as a spokesman for God, you are to live a life of restraint. Some of you at this point may say, I don't want to be a spokesperson for God. It's too much. Sorry to say, you don't have a choice. The Great Commission tells us we're all spokespeople for God. Now our call is to be an effective one. And to be an effective spokesperson in our generation, you and I are to be rooted in the Word. You and I are to serve as watchmen of our generation. And you are and I are to know that we are to live our lives with restraint and limitation for His glory to serve as effective witnesses. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It has touched my heart as well. I admit that I, in many aspects of my life, have not served as an effective spokesperson Many of us have failed in this regard because we are not prepared. But like Ezekiel of old, as we've seen the glory of God, may our response be to humbly begin to transform our life with the enablement of the Holy Spirit to serve as a watchman to our generation. Whether they want to hear it or not, We call their attention to the enemy, not at a gate, but in the far distance. Raise in our church a generation of men and women, especially as our church goes to 50 years of its existence, that we have men and women, all of us, effective spokesmen, And spokeswomen for Jesus Christ in our families, in our schools, in our places of work. So that the name of Jesus Christ will be glorified and proclaimed to the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.